Hi, folks. This is your host, Kiefer Dunn. Um, just wanted to say welcome to the podcast version of this April episode of Buildings on Air. Uh, I know we've been a little bit off our regular schedule. Um, third weeks might become our new regular schedule. So heads up about that. Uh, you can always uh, find us on Twitter to keep up to date with the latest Buildings on Air news. Um, Anyway, I'm having a little intro to the podcast uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, um, in the third segment of the show, when I'm talking with Anjali Rao in uh, the Critics Corner, um, I, I totally butchered a name and a title of a book. Um, the correct name uh, of, of the author is Ellen Meekson's Wood, uh, and the, the title of the book is The Origin of Capitalism. All the other things I referenced I had right in front of me, this I did not. Um, anyway, I'm halfway through it, uh, and I'm finding it to be a very enthralling book. Um, and as it turns out, many of our listeners uh, figured out what the title actually was, and have, have also uh, been listening to it, which is or reading the book, which is fantastic. Um, the other thing um, that I wanted to put out there um, is 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 that I wanted to ask everyone a favor, which is uh, to please rate and review the show on iTunes. It really makes a big difference uh, towards driving traffic to the show. Um, and, you know, we, we put this together every month and with the, with the aim of people sort of listening to it and, and thinking about architecture and politics in new ways. So if that's something that you care about and something that you think the show helps with, then uh, please do give us a little uh, five-star rating there uh, or whatever, your choice. Anyway, um, now on to the broadcast recording of the show. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, 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 and welcome to this April edition of Buildings on Air. We're out of our normal time slot. The, t- the time shifted. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, which is all good. Uh, we, we might end up on thir- third weeks, which we, is we might. maybe. <laughs> uh, certainly uh, in May, certainly uh, in May we, will be. We, will, we will be on a third week again for the yeah. third month in a row. Apparently the producer of this show is a <laughs> screw-up. Uh, I can't say the actual word that he is to the FCC <laughs> regulations, but, but apparently due to uh, the Kimsky fourth anniversary party and the uh, Chicago No Wave Festival, which are being held here at Kimsky's and Co-Prosperity Sphere, respectively. Uh, the producer of this show is uh, triple booked yeah. the day well, after he gets back from vacation. <laughs> look, the way I, I it's community radio, and uh, there's other things going on in the community. And uh, that's 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 one of the reasons why we love being a part of WLPN uh, and and uh, the, the Lumpen Radio family, because uh, there's always something happening. Sometimes that means we got to be a little flexible, which is all all good. It's all good. We got Walmart today, actually, out yeah, in the space. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah, very, very exciting. exciting. So what do we got first, buddy? So today on Buildings on Air, uh, first we have... Uh, an interview uh, with uh, Catherine Allen and Adam Nathaniel Furman. Uh, Catherine Allen is actually taking over the host chair. Um, we pre-recorded this interview yesterday, and it's about a very uh, salient and hot topic uh, right now, which is um, uh, uh, exploitation of uh, interns uh, in architecture offices. Um, then uh, we'll meet with some housing activists from the Lift the Band Coalition um, in Chicago Democratic Socialists of America. Um, the the, the ban they're trying to lift is the ban on rent control. So that's going to be good stuff. We'll hear about kind of the ins and outs of organizing. Um, then we visit the Critics Corner in our newest segment um, with the inimitable Anjali Rao. Uh, we'll be talking about 
an article in Freeze magazine, um, a, a, an interview with the architecture theorist Keller Easterling. Should be a really good conversation. Definitely stay tuned for that. And then uh, we'll, we'll open up the Buildings on Air mailbag, where we answer your listener questions about buildings and architecture. And uh, usually HVAC systems. And usually HVAC <laughs> systems with uh, Anne, uh, Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. So uh, stay tuned for that as well. Uh, so first up, here's our conversation uh, with Catherine Allen and Adam Nathaniel. Daniel Furman. Um, it was it was an, a kind of amazing logistical effort to pull this together, um, and I'm and, and I think it was a great conversation. Excited for y'all to hear it. Okay, we'll be right back. I'm speaking with Kiefer Dunn and Adam Nathaniel Furman, designers and educators based in Chicago and London, respectively. Adam, about a month ago, you first posted on your Instagram about Junya Ishigami not paying his interns and criticized the Serpentine Gallery for commissioning such a designer for their summer series, The Serpentine Pavilion. Shortly afterwards, many other people got in touch to share their own exploitative experiences with architecture practices. While this kicked off a news cycle, such practices are not new to the industry. Kiefer, you're involved with an organization called the Architecture Lobby, which specifically fights against such practices. Adam, what encouraged you to post about this issue, and why do you think it caught fire, so to speak? Um, it is uh, it is interesting about why it caught fire specifically now, as because you, you know, as you point out, it is an issue that's been running in the architecture world for a very long time. Um, the Arc Lobby has been around in the UK. There were a lot of discussions about this subject about uh, from ten to eight years ago. Um, I, I think the fact that this was related to a really it, the, the initial starting point was related to a high profile. Um, architectural cultural commission which everyone looks towards did help sort of catalyze the discussion or brought a lot of people into it that wouldn't have uh, sort of found it so serious otherwise um i i sort of mentioned it because um rather than it being about taking on um a practice like ishigamis which is a practice that produces a lot of fantastic architecture it was just specifically about practices which when a which when someone is receiving a commission in this sort of this international cultural sphere, whether it's a Biennale, an award, or a pavilion like PS1, uh, or the Serpentine Pavilion, I do think that there should be a discussion there between the client and the architect about working practices in the office, whether just related to that commission or more generally. Um. Kiefer, you're very involved in an organization called the Architecture Lobby, which at its core actually works to fight against the exploitative labor practices that Adam has been sort of documenting in his Instagram. Can you speak a bit about the organization, uh, explain its manifesto, and what you are all working to achieve? Yeah, sure. So uh, the Architecture Lobby is sort of uh, been around for four or five years. Uh, and we're a membership organization. We have um, chapters all across the country and uh, uh, internationally as well. Um, and basically, we're, we're, we're an activist organization that advocates for architectural labor. Um, and so we have members who are interested in um, uh, uh, organizing unions. Uh, we have people who are doing research. We have people who are getting resources together to cooperativize architecture offices. Um, we have people who are kind of uh, experts in and how to how to win win better rights and better pay in the workplace. Um, but you know, I think at its core, the lobby is is really about um, 
trying to win a vision of of of, of an architecture that works for everyone uh and recognizing mm -hmm. that uh it kind of has to work for architectural workers um mm -hmm. if we're going to hit that goal so um so and 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 you know we are part of everyone um, um especially as you know the profession sort of increasingly proletarianizes so um that that's the lobby in a nutshell what we do is uh very broad in scope um we have uh members uh, with all kinds of different interests um from from all kinds of spots in the political spectrum, um, although as you might imagine, we hew pretty left, um, <laughs> and we're organized in a very sort of democratic uh, way. Uh, it's not like totally horizontal, but we emphasize sort of accountability um, and and sort of uh, we try to kind of model uh, the 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 kind of openness um, and um, uh, earnestness. Uh, and accountability to to each other um, that we want to see uh, firms embody. I'm I'm curious if you can both speak a bit about the the conversations you had sort of on your sides of this sort of recent uh, news cycle because I imagine actually they were quite different. Kiefer, yours would come from sort of an organizational standpoint, from you know the involvement with the architecture lobby. And Adam, one thing that was noticeable about sort of your follow-up post was that you received a lot of input from other architects who have also been on the receiving end of exploitative practices, you know, ranging from unpaid internships to excessive hours of work. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could both speak about sort of what you learned uh, as a result of this discussion taking off. Um, Kiefer, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... You know, we've talked about the unpaid internship issue in the in the lobby for a while, um, and it can be it can be a really tricky one um, uh, to kind of combat because the the unpaid interns are like sort of the most exploited workers in 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 the architectural workforce. They have the least kind of a, a amount of power. Um, you know, although. Um, you know, our, our kind of fantasy in the architecture lobby is is kind of, you know, to organize like the, the, uh, what, you know, what if all what if one day all of the interns disappeared, right? All the unpaid interns in architecture disappeared, right? Like, you know, all of these like highly prestigious sort of uh, uh, well, well regarded practices would maybe sort of fall, fall apart. Right. And so so um, even, even though these are sort of on, on one hand, the most powerless workers, um, kind of architecture doesn't work without them. And, and there's a different kind of power in that. So, um, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do in the lobby is kind of build build an armature to realize that that untapped potential. Um, you know, one of one of the one of the issues with this kind of work is that uh, it's kind of baked into the American legal system um, and, and it's similar abroad. Um, where you know there has to be damages, um, and so if you're getting unpaid illegally, um, and most unpaid internships are illegal unless they're for a government or a not-for-profit, at least in the U.S., um, then uh, you know your damages are your back pay, which only has to be minimum wage. So, um, so, so, and no lawyer in their right mind is going to you know take a case for that little money. So it's kind of structurally baked into the system that even though there's sort of it's illegal, um, that there's there's no one to kind of stand up for these folks. So eventually um, we kind of hope to grow our organization to the size where we can help 
provide access to those resources, um, but also kind of provide a toolkit for, for, for workers themselves to kind of know how to organize and navigate in those situations. Mm-hmm. So uh, if, if, if they, they might be in an office where they can sort of, you know, uh, t- make a stand. That's not always possible for everyone, but but it might be the case. Um, and on a, on a more basic level, you know, we want our arch- recent architecture students to kind of graduate understanding their worth and what they do is valuable and they're helping other people, uh, you know, make money and uh, they, 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 should, they should be able to kind of stand up for themselves and know how to negotiate and all of those other things. And again, it's one of those things, these are structural issues. So um, it's, it's not always possible for everyone, um, but, but, but those are the kinds of, uh, that, that's kind of our, our general ab- approach. It's kind of multifaceted in, in nature, but it tends to get very specific very quickly when we're talking you know, with, with, with someone who's working in one of these internships and kind of strategizing with them about what to do. Yeah, and then, I mean, Kifa, you were you were mentioning to me about how Arc Lobby are um, sort of developing a, a toolkit, um, uh, sort of in, in terms of advice for people, like how they can organize and like what they might be able to do in situations where they feel like they might be um, not, not have any power to be able to push back against requirements they don't agree with. Which I think is super useful because what I, what I found was I was completely overwhelmed uh, with the amount of people approaching me who were genuinely who felt isolated, lost, upset, confused, trapped um, in a profession that they had not realized was so difficult to make a living in um, and who were coming out of university and facing a prospect of much more debt added to the debt which they already had uh, and not quite seeing how they could go forward. And I had a lot of people approaching me at that stage, just leaving university, but also people who just left the profession because they found that they couldn't survive in it. Um, and it was, it was really overwhelming and incredibly, incredibly sad. I think a lot of, a lot of people in this younger generation who are graduating now around the world are finding themselves in a much more financially precarious situation than generations before. And whereas, I don't know, unpaid internships might've evolved in an economics scenario that maybe made it, it was less problematic, but now it's, it's a sort of an extra barrier, which means that so many people will not be able to continue into the profession, let alone be able to access this highly regarded, um, you know, cultural sphere of architecture, where if you get like one of these offices on your CV, it's like you're made, you have to be able to afford it. I was really, I was really overwhelmed by how, how many people reacted from just one initial post sharing their feelings. And this is kind of internationally, it's across the board globally. Um, So any, any sort of support, that they can have any feeling that they can have guidance um, and organize is just so hugely helpful i think yeah and that that um that activist handbook will probably the first version of it will probably be dropping um hopefully in 2019 we also um at least uh, we have a labor law pamphlet um for people in the us that kind of goes over what your rights are um kind of starting from uh the assumption that a lot of the managers who are sort of Im- implicit in 
and these kinds of practices uh, themselves don't understand the sort of like law. They kind of, you know, rest on on a vague idea of, of, of tradition, you know, and it was how they were raised in the profession. Right. Um, um, and and so, so, you know, we don't want to give them any excuses on that. Um, I, uh, I think there are people who are maybe a little bit more malicious, but the labor law pamphlet is for uh, for those who want to act in good faith and sort of do the right thing and understand their rights and, and give employees their 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 due rights. Um, we also have um, uh, we do organizer trainings on a on a pretty regular basis um, where we teach people sort of the skills of you know how to be an activist because just like learning the design, um, learning how to be an activist is a kind of skill set and so um you know i i think i think that's that's a that's a huge part of 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 what we do is try to like reproduce the structures of of activism Mm -hmm. uh that's a lot of the activism right (laughs) and i i yeah i think you 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 raise an interesting point which i did come across also quite a lot which is that you know it's not these there were a lot of practices like this which i think they were normalized and they were normal for a very long time um and i don't think we should blanket say we, I don't think we should attribute um, sort of malicious intent to a lot of practices that did uh, participate in this way of working. Um, you know, if they're willing, if they're willing to change, because I, I did speak to a lot of people who ran practices who were saying that's just how things were done, and now we're realizing that it, you know the consequences of it, and we were just not aware of that before. So it is also very good to support those who want to move forward and change. I'm I'm curious. This is this is going backwards a little bit, but I'm curious because um, Adam, you mentioned that a number of people that sort of spoke with you after this uh, were young graduates just beginning in the industry and sort of yeah. you know quite stunned by you know what they were finding. And and I'm curious because um, while I think it's it's sort of uh, certainly in U.S. universities, it's standard practice to teach sort of a professional concerns course, which yeah. generally lightly touches upon issues of labor. Um, but I wonder if you think that the the messages regarding labor and architecture would actually be received by students, because I think before you set out in the industry, there's it's hard to understand. I, I wonder if either of you have experience with this or if you've run across sort of young students who really have never seen this before. So what, 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 what sorry, I didn't understand exactly I'm curious to know if you think that students would be able to receive this message, even if we began to teach it sort of more extensively in schools, even if we were sort of a bit more aggressive about it in teachings in university, do you think they would be sort of receptive to these messages? Because I think architecture is a very idealistic profession. I wonder if they would hear that kind of criticism. Yeah, because it was a calling, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean, I, I, so I've taught sort of, professional practice a bit um, and uh, talk about it with my students all the time. And there's a, you know, when we talk about these things as, as structural issues, you know, they really go deep and it's not just structures of architecture, it's sort of structures of, you know, like uh, global capitalism, right? Uh, global finance capitalism. Like there's this idea that we always need to be cultivating our employability. Yeah. So like a lot, a lot of students sort of end up um self-exploiting really hard so it's 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 kind of like 
you know, the boss who is offering the unpaid internship to you is like in a lot of ways already in your head, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, which I think is, is kind of maybe happening what you're, what you're referring to. And so that, that's, that's where I think there's a real potential to do some, not, not just kind of the, the hard nose, like political organizing for sort of, you know, uh, more, more power for, for architectural workers and, and others on the downside of, of power. Um, but, but really where there's a chance to do some like really like ideological work in sort of like, you know, putting it out on, 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 on Instagram as, as a thing that is like, you know, not cool and not acceptable. Um, yeah. I think, I think it takes both things too. So that's why it's been so nice, so nice to see sort of the 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 huge the huge response um uh, uh to, to to adam's posts and everything it's it's a huge part of, of this fight yeah and i think uh, i you know that on the one hand yeah those who are able are very willing to put themselves forward uh, because of the general mindset that we've been indoctrinated with for these sorts of positions i mean i was talking to someone the other day who had this amazing intern who was doing an incredible amount of work who he had to sort of convince to, to take um um, money, <laughs> like he just he seemed not didn't seem to understand that he could be paid for an internship. Um, but I think we also do need to explain to people. And I wish someone had explained this to me when I was younger. Um, I took, I mean, it was not unpaid, but it was virtually unpaid uh, position when I was younger. That yeah, okay, it's really hard work, and you're getting a lot out of it. And yeah, you know, you're sacrificing, um, and it's you know somehow you're you're giving to architecture, and you're building on a, f a foundation for yourself in the future. But you're also excluding other people. So it is, it, in a way, it is a privilege to be able to accept those, even if even if you do have to sacrifice quite a lot and you take on more debt. There are some people who are simply not able to do that, and in a way, you're you're perpetuating a system where access to this high culture architecture is is um, exclusive and kept to only people who are able somehow through family networks a little bit of support, whatever, able to do these unpaid positions. So it's also the fact that they're, they're effectively locking out their fellow students or other people in the profession as well. Um, and I think I found that people are told that they do. I mean, if I'd been told that when I was younger, I would have thought about it all very differently. Yeah. I've I've heard people call that process laundering privilege, right? Where you, you know, you're sort of laundering privilege through through sort of uh, you know uh, co collecting credentials, right? Um, uh, that that sort of legitimate it uh, ostensibly. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it means that only you know if you if you're able to sacrifice enough or you you're supported enough. Having internships in certain of these offices does does allow you through the gateway into this world of like high culture architecture, which is not accessible otherwise. I wonder. I I think that, that certainly seems true, and I wonder if it maybe sort of has. I mean, this is sort of just imagining, but I wonder if it has some effect on the on the architecture ultimately, because it does keep it in quite closed circles, and it does keep discussions quite limited to that of similar experience. The Architects Journal has done a number of surveys, very sort of broad-reaching surveys, looking at the, the students who are able to not just start their degrees in architecture, but finish them. And, and it's actually quite disturbing to see sort of how it often winds up being sort of these people from more privileged positions who not only start, but finish their degrees and then continue into practice and stay in practice. I. Yeah, I wonder if if 
perhaps Kiefer in your work with the architecture lobby, if you've seen sort of or documented any of those sort of pathways and seen any effect on architecture. Yeah, so um we we have we we ourselves have not, um, but some of our some of our allies have um Equity by Design has done a really fantastic job of sort of studying, uh, you know, how people move through their stages of careers and sort of how, um, uh, uh, you know, different different oppressions um, sort of manifest themselves, uh, you know, in kind of people like women, uh, you know, sort of precipitously drop off, <laughs> like after five years in the yeah. profession, yeah. uh, things like this. And they, and, and, and equity by design has done some really fantastic research on that. Um, and, and the, you know, AJ has done some fantastic research as well that you were just citing and, and also talked a lot about the kind of like mental health toll um, that that takes on, on sort of students, um, you know, this kind of having, having this, uh, this sort of, you know, Floss in your head, telling you know, telling you to be cultivating your employability all the time, um, and so like, so yeah, I mean, I, I think even though we haven't done the kind of research ourselves, we try to operationalize it um, in in some way. Um, you know, I think one of the other insights uh, that we that we have is you know understanding that um, you know this this sort of hot the, while a lot of a lot of the most egregious examples of this sort of happen in like the high culture side of architecture uh they sort of end up you know it's like trickle trickle down exploitation you know in into uh the sort of you know like larger offices um you know a lot of a lot of the best jobs in architecture um end up being sort of you know big corporate offices, maybe some, some of those sort of least interesting places to work. Um, and it's because, you know, they have uh, HR departments that are telling them, you know, <laughs> what they can and can't do according to the right. law. And they have big institutional clients so they can afford to pay and all of those other things. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, that one of the conditions that we're trying to sort of understand and, and, and act around is, you know, um, how do we talk about this system holistically and involve sort of architecture workers from every type of office in in a kind of in a kind of fight? Uh, and so we we do have people who work for you know uh, Pritzker Prize winning architects and and in the lobby, and we also have people who work for you know uh, firms that have part, sort of corporate acronyms that you you know you've never heard of. Um, and, and everywhere in between, um, and 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 also academics and and students, and because because it's it, it's happening it's happening at every step. This pattern gets kind of repeated or uh, emerges in in sort of diff different ways. Um, and so so uh, I don't know if that's actually an answer to the question. <laughs> <Can> <laughs> to your question, <laughs> and I mean, there's there's it's so many. There are a series of inter interrelated problems across a profession that start at, at university. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure about the US, but in the UK, there is a lot of expectation um, in the curriculums that, that students have to spend quite a bit of money um, on producing quite sophisticated, complex models, physical models. Um, they have to spend a lot of money printing on nice paper, constantly printing. Um, they have to have uh, the ability to produce quite um, sophisticated drawings and 3D models on software, which 
for instance, students who live remotely from the university cannot access the computers there. So they require or they need to have their own computer of a, of a certain power, which only certain people can have. Um, there's a, so there's a lot of great difficulty and barriers there in the education system, first of all, to like being able to actually complete your degree uh, in a way that's sometimes not visible because it just you can't necessarily tell that the, that the student is struggling simply because they, for instance, are doing all their, their drawings on an iPad that they borrowed from their mum. Um, you just think sometimes think, oh, the student on the final grade and when they're not there, you just think that they're just not doing very good drawings. Um, so these, these, these inequities are quite hidden. Um, and then people go out into, you know, there's the issue of un unpaid internships, but also when they're setting up practices, it's really, it's very difficult. I don't know about the US, but in the UK, there's a real problem with fees that have had a race to the bottom over the past 10 years since the crisis. Um, and as particularly as a young practice, you, you tend to need to invest a lot of time in unpaid work on competitions, unpaid work uh, doing, you know, installations and little pavilions for, uh, <clears throat> I won't mention, but sometimes very venerable institutions that don't pay anywhere near enough to actually cover the work. Um, and this continues through to, you know, you grow your practice. There's, there's issues kind of along the way that are constant barriers, you know, and then if you want, if you want to have children and you work for a practice, uh, very often the hours that are expected means that you have to pay for uh, childcare, which is wildly expensive in the United Kingdom. And locks most people out. So it's, it's sort of like a, a marathon run with like spikes, you know, boiling oil, arrows, like all the way along. That, that you know, if you're shielded with perhaps family wealth or support, then you know you can go through it. But otherwise, you you know you get you get killed <laughs> along the way. Right, and I and I think I mean there's we touched on it a bit earlier, Kiefer, specifically um, this very sort of insidious binary that exists in architecture, this idea that you, you know, you do interesting work at offices that don't pay and, and boring work at offices that do. And mm. and I wonder, it seems often that many sort of young people starting out in the industry keep this idea very much in their consciousness and and also keep the idea that they have a limited amount of time in which they can engage in that type of work before they have to get serious about their lives, um, you know, and, and start making a salary so that they can <laughs> support a family and sort of pay for their house. You know, you, you put almost, it's almost, you know, like being a model, you put sort of 10 years on your, on your career, you know. I, I wonder if you seen sort of practices or if you've started to see sort of a change in recent years or or if you haven't at all because as we've said before this discussion isn't new and people are very aware of this are people demanding change or do you not see it yeah i mean i i think so but i think i think that I think that these are real political frustrations that people don't always see as a matter of politics. So like when we get into architecture, I, I think I think most people get into architecture because they want to put something beautiful in the world for people to enjoy. Right. Or, 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 or something good. Or I, I don't think people, you know, sort of get into architecture to sort of, uh, you know, uh, pad their egos. I mean, that we, there are some of those folks around. We've met some, but, but I think that that's more of a matter of sort of how people are, are, are socialized um, in school and, and, and sort of start, begin to understand what's, what success is. But, but uh, I, I, I think that people like are, are trying to 
you know, have grapple with this cognitive dissonance between wanting to do good and realizing that a lot of what we do in the profession is sort of carry water for developers or, you know, who, who need, who either need our architect stamp, um, or sort of, you know, need, need us to kind of provide some, uh, uh, you know, as aesthetic trappings, uh, to, to help build a kind of luxury brand, um, or, uh, you know, to sell a project to a community, right. That, that might otherwise not necessarily want it. And so, um, you know, I, I think I think people are sort of correctly realizing that that's like not what they want to do. Mm. Um, I think the, I think the, the kind of mistake is that uh, is, is to think that it's sort of a matter of of of, of success that you can actually like es- escape from that that system at all. Um, and, and that there's, you know, the, the grass is not always greener on the on the other side <laughs> when, it, when it comes to architecture practices. Um, you know, I think like there's a reason why alternative practices are always, you know, made to be alternative and, and never become part of the mainstream. So, so you know, our practices that do sort of socially oriented work. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that um, that that's kind of another another version of what we mean when we say that this is a kind of structural structural problem. Um, and I and I think. Uh, the, the 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 people's consciousness is slowly starting to change on that um you know mm-hmm. i think that people are realizing that you know hey like the problems that i have with my work right the fact that like i'm alienated from the things that i make um the fact that like uh um you know i'm i'm working like long long hours right uh and like clicking away on a computer for a project that i'll never see in in real life i mean like these these are these are these are problems that you know uh, all kinds of other workers have and i think that that's one of one of the ways in which uh, architecture is becoming a part of a kind of broader uh political awakening um that you know we might talk about as a kind of crisis of legitimacy for for kind of you know ne- neoliberalism and because we're we're seeing that you know our our issues uh in 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 work are are the same as lots of other people's and 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 uh th- there's a kind of solidarity that i think could emerge there um and pave the way for an architecture that does actually sort of uh take care of people um and and is focused on kind of genuinely making nice things for the masses <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does. I I wonder if you believe, maybe I'm leading you to an answer I want to hear, but do you believe that sort of an architectural profession that takes care of its workers would also result in architecture that takes care of the people? Do you think there would be maybe a more social connection? Have you seen that in any of these alternative practices you mentioned? I, 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 yes and no. I'm, I mean, I think, um, I think the important thing is that workers, architecture workers have a seat in the table, at the table, right? And, and sort of recognize that we have a lot more in common with each other than, than we do with the sort of, uh, you know, like the, the developers and insurance companies and, you know, uh, real estate uh, folks who are sort of calling the shots on, on, on a lot of these projects. And so um, I, I think that, um, 
when 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 workers have a seat at the table, um, it, you know, there there's a, in, interests are aligned, right, with with other other workers, regardless of whether they're architects or not. So I, I don't know that it's it's an automatic uh, sort of you know you treat your architecture workers great, and then and then you kind of have a more just and equitable you know um, uh, product at the end. Um, but I think that uh, it is a precondition for doing for doing that. And I think, to be honest, even if there is no link at all between those two, which which I would be very skeptical about, it doesn't mean that you should continue to we should continue to treat architectural workers the way we do. I mean, even if the buildings being produced by the by the profession right. continue to be atrocious, <laughs> it's we should, <laughs> we should still be right. looking <laughs> for this anyway. This kind of reform. There were some arguments just sort of coming out that. Uh, you know, for instance, in Japan, that there's a tradition of this, these kinds of internships. And, you know, there was always a tradition of these kinds of internships in Europe, in the UK, and in the United States as well. But I, I don't necessarily think that saying that the profession has always been thus is an argument for keeping it the same. No, I mean, it sort of dovetails also with conversations we have in architecture all the time, which is whether you move forwards or whether you look backwards. It's it's actually quite striking that this conversation sort of refers to tradition as sort of it it does seem very sort of tied to the profession. Um, one thing we've we've danced around the idea a little bit, but um, one of one of the points in the architecture lobby's manifesto is to demystify the architect as a solo creative genius, and I think. In the past few years, there's been sort of discussions that this this idea has sort of died out, that this was an early 2000s sort of bubble that has now burst or waned, and we're moving away from that model. But I wonder um, if, if, if you see that sort of breaking down, or if you see sort of the, the labor practices that came out as a result of people really wanting to work for these sort of dark techs. Um, if they've now become sort of entrenched in the profession, do you see it breaking down? Um, gosh, you know, I I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think in, in in some ways, like uh, yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of educators are sort of you know leading the charge on this and sort of you know teaching about collaboration um, and uh, you know tagging student work right as as kind of student work and 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 not their own um but you know like you go if you go to manhattan right uh you know it's it's new building by you know so so and so right uh you know i think you, you know they will say like by rem cool houses oma even i think i saw uh, last time I was in New York. Right? and yeah, it was it was super weird. I was like, you just had to squeeze the name in there, right? Like on on the sort of you know banner in front of the construction site. And so I, you know, I I think that there's a way in which these these things are kind of you know people people become brands and 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 sort of uh, you know that gets used for luxury marketing. Um, and I think that there's kind of you know many many versions of this happening all the time. You know, in, in the kind of constant need to be kind of brand branding yourself and, and and putting yourself out there uh you know or else you you know you you end up kind of uh fading away into irrelevant it's sort of one of the cruelties of 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 kind of our our moment that you always kind of have to be uh turning yourself into into a commodity so um i think that even even though it's 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 getting better uh in that in that respect i, I still think that there's kind of fundamental parts of that dynamic 
um, uh, that that will require a, a much sort of broader change in, in in economic structures for us to kind of address. And I think that architects can be kind of a, a part of that because uh, uh, for for kind of obvious reasons. Um, and 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 yeah, so good good progress. And um, uh, we, you know, we got to keep up the fight. Um, it, for, for me, um, I, I'm I'm a bit I'm always a little bit suspicious of. Um, um, allocating something which seems so broad and has such a deep history to one particular period that's recent and so which everyone has a visceral hatred for you know star architecture was it seems it's kind of relatively brief moment in architectural history um and as far as i've understood from my historical readings this this sort of uh, lauding of individual figures and sort of crazy working practices that relate to them because people treat them or people relate to them more as disciples than as workers. It's something that goes way back. I mean, you read horrible stories about Louis Kahn's office. Um, and, you know, in terms of, you know, people relating to very specific figures, okay, maybe now they've recently become or they became like brands in the 2000s, but, you know, the Eames, the Smithsons, they were, they were figures that were revered as great geniuses. And I think that there's a psychological human need the people to relate to people and not not acronyms. Um, and it, you know whether the acronym is a corporate acronym or it's a creative practice of multiple people working for the social good. Um, I think there's always a place for people needing to relate to a figure. Why monarchies are so popular? Um, it's like a person that embodies a much more complex thing, organization behind them. I mean, Richard, Richard Rogers' practice was set up with a lot of good social goals. It was good to its workers, but it had his name on the door, and that's how people related to it. I'm a bit. I'm a bit suspicious of over uh, over prescribing this thing uh, to the particular period of architecture, and I don't think it'll entirely go away. But I have seen an amazing return to this discourse of having more space in the profession for collaboration, mutual respect, um, and not sort of the one big name above the door, which I don't think will ever go away. No, I think I think there's also a natural human inclination to sort of want to you know assert yourself in that way. I'm I'm wondering um there I mean this is of course not the first moment that there's been discussion about labor practices in architecture and it's also not the first time that sort of architecture has you know taken on a much more sort of uh robust political involvement uh, I wonder Kiefer you have sort of particular expertise in the intersection of architecture and labor and I wonder if you can speak about how maybe this moment differs from similar and prior moments in history. Oh gosh. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's a really, that's a, that's a, a tough question. I mean, I, I think that the, the, the position of the architect in the economy and our, in our role in the economy um, has fundamentally shifted um uh recently um you know i think that uh what what hasn't changed um is that you know architecture is still uh a, a kind of you know luxury commodity in 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 a lot of respects um you know our our clients are are are, are always the wealthy uh whether they it's the state or um you know the banks or uh you know uh, well, well-off individuals. It tends to be the kind of the kind of case, um, and so um, I mean, I so so I I think that that that's a kind of through line. Um, but um, I think the nature of our work is very different. You there's a huge industry trend 
towards consolidation. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know a lot of the medium-sized practices, and this is maybe sort of anecdotal, uh, but are getting kind of hoovered up by by large multinational architecture firms. And so I think you really see, you know, the, the profession polarizing into a kind of uh, academic, you know, culturally oriented sort of like a, a small practice kind of a, a, elitist uh, camp. And, and then a kind of, you know, the, the, the rest of it, uh, which is handled sort of, uh, you know, by, by, by larger architectural corporations. Um, it's it's increasingly difficult for for people to kind of carve out an a, an existence in in, in the middle, um, and so you know uh, not, neither of those things are are necessarily desirable. They they have sort of uh, different problems, but but they're problems that are kind of related. And so um, you know I, I but but I but I think that I I think that people are connecting their lived experiences in that environment uh to sort of bigger social critiques um i think that 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 feels different for architecture it's not that architects have been you know never involved in sort of social criticism or like left-wing politics or like whatever before there's like countless examples of this um but i think that architects have really never been involved as workers before and um, and and I think that 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 that's what feels different. We we're not seeing um, design as the kind of agent for making change. We're seeing ourselves as workers as the agents for making change, uh, which I which I think is sort of like more accurate, right? I mean, if you want to talk about how building makes change, it definitely does. But it, it, it's sort of very very ephemeral, right? Like a, a building doesn't walk a picket line. Um, and and so uh, I, I think that I think that that there's, there's all kinds of new potentials and possibilities and solidarities that can emerge from from that change. Um, and 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 I and I and I'm really excited about it. For one, I mean, I, it's it's really easy to kind of sound sound really cynical or, or down um, uh, in these kinds of conversations. But but I actually think that the future looks quite bright. Well. I actually think that's quite a, quite a positive note to end this on. Thank you very much for your time. Dimension Door 2019 comes to the sphere on May 18th. Our annual summer game convention features indie designers testing games, published authors, and game makers, as well as a selection of independent video games. Dimension Door 2019 kicks off at 1 p.m. May 18th, only at the Sphere. It benefits Muppet Radio. Welcome to Wellmart. Join Co-Prosperity Sphere's new artist-run curatorial team and self-care experts on 420 as we open the door to warm spring Bridgeport breezes and reset our chakras together. Wellmart is at the Sphere on Saturday, April 20th from 4 to 8 p.m. and is open to all who want to be healed. 
You know it benefits Lumpin' Radio. Did you know you can now stream Lumpin' Radio on your favorite internet-connected devices? Just say, Hey Alexa, play WLPN. Lumpin' Radio from TuneIn. And don't forget, you can take us with you anywhere you go. Download our app in the App Store. Lumpin' Radio. Make all your robots play us. Lumpin' Radio is brought to you in part by Hex Coffee. Hex roasts and blends specialty coffees and barrel-aged varietals, all available for sale at finer Chicagoland establishments. Hex is now available in Bridgeport at Jackalope and the Duck Inn. More information is at hexecoffee.com. Hex Coffee. Which craft? You've heard of content. But have you heard of Content Plus? Content Plus Fashion. Content Plus News. Content Plus Culture. Content Plus Fluids. Content Plus Art. Content Plus Music. Content Plus The Heat Death of the Universe. Content Plus Controversy. Content Plus Laundry. Content Plus Equals Are We Cool Yet? Wednesday morning, midnight to one, only on 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Welcome back to Buildings on Air, and uh, we we are back in the present, live in studio, um, talking about uh, lifting the ban on rent control um, with Lift the Ban Coalition activists Peter Hughes, Melinda Bunnage, uh, who are also uh, very active in Chicago Democratic Socialists of America. And um, how's it going, y'all? It's good. Yeah, it's going pretty good. <laughs> good, good. Well, thanks for. Uh, coming down to the co-prosperity sphere and chatting with us. Um, so first question, what is Lift the Ban? So uh, Lift the Ban is a campaign to lift the ban on rent control. Um, in the state of Illinois, um, ALEC uh, uh, in 1995 uh, passed legislation banning rent control. Um, they did it in Illinois and a number of other states. A- ALEC? Alec, uh, the super right wing. <laughs> I think it's the American Legislative Exchange Committee uh, or something yes, like I've that. Yes, I've heard of these. They're like a, a sort of think tank that puts out an uh, insidious legislation. Yeah, yeah, like they're behind right to work and a lot of like anti-union um, yeah. policy and legislation. Sounds like r- real real winners. <laughs> yeah, they suck. <laughs> So, so, so that ban on rent control is at the sort of state level, um, which uh, kind of presents an, a real organizing challenge for for activists. Um, so, what organizing work like has been done up to this point? Sort of, what's the state of uh, the the campaign? Um, who else besides Chicago DSA is in the coalition? Um, tell us what the haps is. So. Um For several election cycles now, we've, along with our coalition partners such as um, the the uh, Pilsen Alliance, uh, the Kenwood Oakwood Oakland Community Organization, um, 
Uh, one North Side. One North Side, Jane Addams Senior Caucus, and many others. Hope um, Center. Yeah. Um, we've organized uh, canvassing and, and non-binding referenda asking voters in certain wards throughout the city if they wanted they supported lifting the ban on rent control Mm -hmm. so we did that in uh, march uh, for the primary Mm -hmm. uh, march 2018 and and dsa um, anchored our campaign in hyde park Mm -hmm. in a couple precincts there and were over overwhelmingly successful i think more than 70 percent of the voters supported lifting the ban on rent Mm -hmm. control then in the November election, we had a, a couple more wards that we were taking um, throughout the city, and again, very successful. Over 70% on average supported lifting the ban on rent control. Mm-hmm. So that was um, really getting uh, our foot in the door and making sure you know people are aware of what's going on mm-hmm. and talking to people on, their, on the doors and getting this talked about on the city level. So in, and in the mayoral election... All the mayoral candidates were asked many times yeah. what was their stance on rent control, and they had to say what it was. Yeah, yeah, including Lori Lightfoot, who I, I heard was is not is is not necessarily a friend of rent control. Lori Lightfoot of. does not like rent control. Yeah. She mostly doesn't. She and what the what you see like a lot of liberal politicians doing, um, and this is both at the city and the state level. But um, they'll talk about yes, we need affordable housing. Like we totally. Um, you know, that's a problem. But then their answer is more vouchers. Um, right. and, and housing vouchers essentially work as a way. Um, uh, it's like vouchers and incentives for develop uh, for real estate or people, um, companies or um, landlords, big landlords to just like build like more affordable housing. But I mean, like a voucher system, that's just putting like we're just putting it back in the hands of right. the um, the developers like what we want is we want people to actually have you know ownership and a control and a say over what their own communities look like and we think that one way you do that is rent control because sure. it's us you know controlling that yeah and how does that so how does that fit into like a larger fight for housing justice and uh next question <laughs> stack them up for you uh and how and how does sort of uh like housing justice figure into a kind of like larger like left or socialist you know strategy or thinking well this is really important also when thinking about um the question you asked earlier about this statewide versus the local level because you know rent control is really popular it's really popular here in the city um and it's popular like in other places but it doesn't meet the immediate need of maybe like small towns Mm. or even neighbor urban neighborhoods that are experiencing disinvestment rather than investment where maybe their biggest problem is um, vacancy lot, uh, yeah. vacant lots. Um, you know, so, uh, it, and we've really found that what we, what we want to do is think more about like how is rent control part of a larger platform and a larger, larger push for like a housing for all, um, mm. legislation or, or campaign, um, that isn't just saying rent control, but is also saying like, we need more public housing. We need more, um, uh, so we, we need socialized housing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, something that um, uh, we were talking with Jeanette Taylor, a city council person um, who was just elected in the 20th ward, who was saying, you know, what if uh, landlords um, had to actually live in the, like, you have to live in the city to own property. You can't just, you know, be yeah. somewhere out in the suburbs and owning a whole bunch of stuff in the city. So there's there's all kinds of things you can think about when you think about what a housing for platform, housing for all platform might look like. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, rent control it helps to get people starting to think about 
does my landlord have the rights or should they, I mean, they do, should they have the right to decide, yeah, well, that's a 10% increase this year. That's a 20% increase this year. The neighborhood's changing. And, you know, I own the property. You don't. You may have lived here for a few years. You may have your life based here, but that doesn't really mean anything at the end of the day Mm because I'm the property owner. Mm -hmm. And people, um, I think, about fifty percent. I don't know. I'm not really familiar with. Don't have the exact stat on my yeah on my head. But something about half of renters in Chicago are burdened, and they pay over thirty percent of their um, income mm-hmm. to rent. Mm-hmm. And back in the twenties, it used to be. I think the the rule of thumb was you know maybe ten percent or twenty percent of your income would go to rent, and it's just eroded over time and over time, and it's yeah. gotten worse and worse. I think rent control is a good first step to getting people to think about these issues and getting people to think about um, a community is not just for developers. It's not for land owners, landlords. It's for the people who live there. Mm -hmm. And then we can start thinking about um, how can we really get social housing and other um, types of policies that would move us towards uh, decommodifying our housing market and getting rid of a housing market and just having a better uh, base yeah. for living in a city. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel like we may have brought it up on the last show too, but we talked about where we talked about David Harvey and uh he talks about housing as like one of the great examples of sort of like, you know, use value and exchange value, like as sort of Marx talks about them uh, and how a house has this incredible use value which is that you get to live in it. Um but then now, you know, it it it, it they, it becomes all about the exchange value in our contemporary sort of real estate market, which is literally just sort of like what like what people can pay for the house. The house becomes a commodity, and so I think uh, decommodifying is a way of sort of uh, uh, making living and and housing more aligned with the sort of use value of it. Is that is that like a fair? Yeah. 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 Rent control is one step towards decommodifying housing, and we have many other steps to take, but we have to decommodify housing if we want to address housing injustice. Like, you can't look at, like, homelessness, or you can't look at all these things in just, like, small, you know, like, through a narrow scope. Like, this is about, like, the commodification of housing, and that's why we're here. Yeah, so... um Going back to sort of the 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 alderman, it's it's been like a really <laughs> like amazing month. I think like like just a few days ago, like a week ago, uh, uh, we found out that um, Rosanna in the thirty third ward uh, won her aldermanic election. Um, so that means we have uh, now six uh, Chica- DSA backed uh, 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 aldermen uh, with twelve percent of the city council, which is um like sort of unprecedented and like really amazing and i think a testament to all the kind of like organizing work and time on the doors um that that dsa members have spent um byron byron uh sigcho lopez who's been on the who's on the show like a year and a half ago also talking about sort of housing and anti-gentrification fights uh is now an alderman uh, in pilsen which is incredible um so like how, how do you guys see that uh as sort of related to to the the, the lift the ban campaign um how might it sort of uh help uh or is it sort of un- unclear yet what 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 the relationship will be well, certainly, like we know our aldermen are 
um, all of them, uh, one of the biggest parts of their platforms was housing related. Yeah. And so it was about gentrification in their neighborhoods. And, and um, you know, uh, like I said, rent control, vacant lots, the Obama Center, CBA, mm-hmm. the um, all these different things. So we know that like our aldermen are feeling the heat um, and, 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 and the urgency to see change happen. Um, and in part, a lot of that urgency is what was the, some of the fire, I think, behind a lot of these campaigns um, so that we can continue to make sure this city is a city for mm-hmm. the many, not the few, um, as, uh, as Rosanna said yes. in the 33rd <laughs> Ward. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, ways like we see our, our city council members as um, people who will help lead the fight, like even if it's statewide, like we think that they are in a position to um, to really like help us figure out what does it look like to lift the ban on the state because we need to do that to mm-hmm. get it here, right. and so they're in it with us on that, and um, and 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 they're going to want to work with us there and and help us, you know, really look at JB JB Pritzker. In his um, in his uh, campaign for governor, said he supported lifting the ban on rent control. Yeah. Like he said that. Yeah. That's that's a thing. Yeah, it's, it's accountability time. <laughs> yeah, so it's time for our. I think our city council need to be. Look, you said that you wanted to lift the ban on rent control. You need to do it like yeah. yesterday. Yeah, because we need it here. Yeah. and so that's what we want our city council members to be saying. Right. Uh, and by the way, you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Um, so yeah, that's, so that's, that's really interesting. And I'm, and I'm, I'm sort of curious, like what, like, where is the opposition coming from and what have you heard from, from them? Um, I mean, I think this is a wonderful campaign and sort of like showing how people power, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I doubt lift the band coalition gets much funding if, if, if any, nope. <laughs> maybe you nope. bought some clipboards or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I think it's, it's a good example of like what people power looks like in the face of, you know, systems that seem sort of intractable um but so, so where, where is the opposition who who are they um let, let's 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 name them <laughs> <laughs> um there are probably a lot of organizations that people aren't necessarily familiar with like mm. the chicago chicagoland uh, realtors association or yeah. association of realtors um other um housing developers um such as uh, Mark Fishman out in the, more of the Logan Square area. He yeah. was a big opponent of our uh, returning alderman, Carlos Rosa, heavily funded um, Carlos's opponent, Amanda U. Dietrich, and um, other people like Silver Properties mm-hmm. um, and uh, other groups throughout the state um, that have really they've taken note of how well we've done in our referendum campaigns and and just how well we've done in getting the media talking about rent control, and they're starting to organize. Um, and obviously they have the resources that, um, unfortunately, we do not. Um, we're continuing to, uh, I, I think it was in the March, we had an action, uh, direct action March 1st, at the Chicago Land Association of Realtors mm-hmm. um, office on Michigan Avenue, and we uh, got a lot of, uh, I think, front-page coverage in the mm-hmm. Chicago Sun-Times to really call out that these are the... The, the enemy, really, uh, it's beyond them in particular. It's also people who are used to the way of doing business where the real estate is 
become sort of the backbone of development in Chicago mm-hmm. with Lincoln Yards and with the 78s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the idea that the, the city is an economic machine and that we need mega developments that will create new neighborhoods, gentrify people out of their neighborhoods, bring new people in, um, you know, so-called, um, well, I don't know what you would call them, but just new people that are uh, not the people who've lived there before. Right. And that's the way mm-hmm. that you get a city going. And it's based on, you know, property taxes and, and budgeting. And it's so it's not just the real estate lobby. It's also uh, politicians, people who are right. just not who are just sort of going by and getting along. Uh, we had a little bit of a scrape recently with Curtis Tarver, the rep in Hyde Park, who he was on the record supporting lifting the ban on rent control and then in subcommittee voted against the bill that would do that. Mm. And uh, his excuse was, uh, I don't even know what it was. It was, well, I don't know if this is such a good idea now. Not even lifting the ban on rent control, not mm. particular idea or form of rent control, still to be <laughs> determined. Sure. Yeah. And I would, I would add that, like, what and, and this is what really happened in California and what people, uh, what the real estate lobby, um, who's gonna, what they're gonna try to do here, is basically like a a, a confusion campaign, right. um, where they um, uh, like put out misinformation or like twist the facts. Like what happened in California is people started saying um, the the real estate lobby. They, they would tell people, oh, if you care about affordable housing, vote no on this bill. So people <laughs> thought that they were voting for rent yeah. control or, or they were voting in, in line with their values or in whatever. Yeah. And um, uh, and so so this whole like misinformation sort of confusion thing. And then you see it again here with the um, uh, the realtor, the real estate campaign is about um Again, like if you care about affordable housing, like email your reps and say we need affordable housing, not rent control. Like, yeah. um, and so they're going to be continue to do that. And we've seen our legislators who've been paid off essentially flip on rent control and say, well, we we want to reevaluate what affordable housing means. Right. And that's where you see the whole voucher right. thing. Right. Yeah, and, and and I think they also end up pointing to at least something I've heard a lot is they end up pointing to sort of like really like bad studies that sort of like <laughs> purport to be sort of objective, but are actually like hugely ideological. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think like every, every, for, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. Like everyone took like high school economics and they saw a supply and demand chart and they're like, Oh, so if you build more, the prices go down. But like the, the point of a com- when, when something is heavily commodified, that's not strictly true because it becomes an object of price speculation. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> So what you 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 end up getting all of these people who say like yeah like you know how else are you going to incentivize the developers to build more houses to then bring the price down and it's like well no the the, the flip side of that is developers only build in places where they know they're going to get like be able to maximize maximize their rents mm-hmm. and um and 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 that's not the place <laughs> that's not the places where there's like you know need for for quality good housing necessarily um and so I think like. Yeah, it, it, like not not to mention the fact that um, a lot of what's driving these these huge price spikes is sort of la- like land speculation, um, pr- and 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 not the actual cost of sort of building something. Um, I think that's that's an, an area where architects can sort of maybe like uh, put some expertise on the ground and and, uh, and 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 sort of think some some more about about how those mechanisms work. Um, 
but but mostly I you know I, I'm, I'm especially pumped to have you guys on the show because I think the campaign is just like such a good example of like what it means for uh, or what happens when um, like regular people <laughs> sort of get involved on the ground with with activism um, and not try to find like you know. Um, uh, like invent a new mousetrap, like and try to invent like a better scheme for public housing or like whatever. Um, I think, you know, recognizing this as a political fight and then uh, figuring out ways to insert yourself into that political fight is is a really challenging thing to do. Um, and so I know that's this is kind of like a big impossible question, but like, you know, like how have you guys managed to do that? Like, you know, give us some of like the, the sort of like how – like how do you start organizing, right? Like, uh, how, how does this campaign, like, give us a look under the hood? Well, I think, like, a huge goal of the campaign is, one, to point out class enemies. Mm-hmm. And, and we do that um, by saying, like, look, our, our enemies here are the developers. Right. Like, the real estate gentrification is not because, you know, um, uh, is because, like, a whole bunch of, like, yuppies want to move places. Like, that's not the thing <laughs> driving gentrification. Right. It's it's the developers. Right. And we need, um, we need to, uh, uh, and, and so, the, so that, and being able to say that, like, I think really resonates with people, and that's one of the tools that we always think about is, like, how do we continue to point them out as the problem, mm-hmm. you know? In Carlos Rosa's campaign, it was really important to say, look, like, the reason why this woman is running, she's being funded by Mark Fishman. Like, Mm -hmm. Mark Fishman is paying for her campaign. Mm -hmm. And it's because Carlos has stood up to to developers Mm -hmm. um, on city council. And so Mark Fishman's the enemy, you know, like, and, and so really we, we try to do that as much as possible. Um, uh, I think that's one, one way. Um, And uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's an issue that people really feel this deeply. Mm-hmm. And I think part, a lot of the success has been because we've reached out to people in a lot of different areas, not necessarily just where we have a socialist running for alderman, but um, where we just thought, well, we have a good base of you know maybe DSA members here, or this seems like it's a neighborhood that we could, we could work with or something. Yeah. And we've gotten a lot of success because people – feel this even if they're not even if they identify as maybe a republican or you know a a liberal they feel um that they don't have control over their lives Mm -hmm. that they've been pushed from neighborhood to neighborhood and i think we've just done a good job of of training people to talk on the doors ask you know what you know what are the issues in your your life with housing where have you you've been pushed out of a neighborhood Mm -hmm. are you worried about getting pushed out of your your current situation, oh, well, here's my story, and then really connecting to people on that type of level. Yeah. Yeah, there's no substitute for activism. It gives me lots of hope for the future. I think, um, you know, it's easy to feel like these things are intractable and impossible, and you have to figure out a new way to do it, but, like, getting on the doors and having conversations, there's just no substitute for it. Um, That's all the time we have for this segment. Uh, Where can people find more information? So uh, if you go to um, the LiftTheBanCoalition.org, so it's L-T-B Coalition, 
org. Um, you can learn more about you know what we've been doing here in Chicago and at the statewide level and, and how you can get involved. All right. Melinda, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Buildings on Air, and I'll uh, see you guys at probably a meeting or something. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks. If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Welcome back to Buildings on Air, and uh, we're here with the regular segment, our newest regular segment, one of two, The Critics' Corner with Anjali Rao. Anjali, how's it going? Good. How are you doing, Kiefer? I'm doing extremely well. Good. Um, have we come up with a better name? No, we haven't. No, uh, no one sent in any suggestions other than Critics' Corner, which I... <laughs> two Ks? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no. Yeah, uh, we got we to gotta f- figure something out there. Um Send us your ideas for yeah, a right. title of this segment, yes. everyone. Yeah, Gen- generally uh, not in favor of unpaid competitions, but I think this is uh, low enough stakes. So it's, <laughs> please send in your best puns. Um, <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Uh, I guess it doesn't have to be pun-based, but, you know. Uh, I, I do like alliteration, so, like a, yeah, you know, that's nice. Go. All right. Think about it, folks. Um, anyway, so, Angelique, what are we talking about today? Um, today, so uh, this, we came across an article, well, an interview um, in Freeze Magazine. Um, so uh, shout out to Anne Lee, um, <laughs> who was uh, a co-curator of the Venice Biennale, which uh, traveled from Venice to Chicago. And a regular member of and our a, a mailbag of the mailbag segment. Yeah, yeah, and a neighbor to Lumpen Radio as Indeed. well. <laughs> um, Anne's around um (laughs) she's always nearby which is great um so as a co-curator she um amassed this group of um, architects and artists um who were thinking about um the ideas of citizenship and belonging in the world Mm. uh to create the venice pavilion which then traveled to chicago relatively recently um and a show was mounted at wrightwood 659 Mm -hmm. um, on the north side so um this article is an interview um with evan between Evan Moffat, who is an associate editor at Freeze Magazine and a critic in New York, um, and Keller Easterling, who was a participant in the Venice Biennale. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a de- trained as an architect, sort of works in design now, um, but created an app called Make, which um, is... Is it many? Many, I'm sorry. Many. Many, many, uh, many uh, which uh, is um, on display right now through April 27th, but it's essentially like an app that mm-hmm. is used to connect... Um, people who may be traveling um, under unfortunate circumstances. <laughs> um, we can't, not necessarily, well, we'll talk about this soon as she makes note, not necessarily refugees, but um, individuals who may be pressed in certain circumstances um, for resources. Mm-hmm. So ways to connect um, individuals with um assets that they may may need. Um, And that can be anything from like a spot on your couch, right? Um, All the way to um, if you need a livestock or if you need um, shelter, (laughs) you know, she brings up the idea like if you are an individual or a group in Bangladesh during flood season and you need to get out, um, what may you need? Because as kind of she states in this interview, um, goods travel more easily than people, Mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting idea. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I don't know. Kiefer, do you want to kind of give me a, um, some of your thoughts on just your initial reactions? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think it's important to say off the bat. So I think, you know, Keller Easterling wrote this book called Extra Statecraft a while ago that I think um, uh, has a lot of, you know, 
the, the bigger ideas behind this app are, were kind of presented in that book. And um, one of the things that that book did really successfully, I thought, was sort of talk about how uh, a lot of like the, the a lot of power like manifest in in uh, the power of of uh, sort of neoliberal globalization like gets manifest in like weird boring like legislation and standards and things like this and these sort of um, extra state institutions um, and 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 I think that that is really um, been it's it's been an important sort of entry point for a lot of people to kind of think about that stuff and that's one of my research interests as well and uh, you know i think where where i always get a little bit skeptical of sort of uh, um of keller easterling's writings and projects is i think that i have a very uh, different theory of how change gets made um and i think that 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 for me is is maybe like where i kind of have like a visceral sort of reaction to some of this stuff um, I mean, like, because I, I mean, like, I don't know, so, sort of you, you read the app, you read the, the thing about the app. And I think that there's like a lot of use cases that actually sound like, OK, like this, this app is like helping solve problems, like, you know, not necessarily in a solutionist sort of way. But like, uh, th- there's also lots of use cases that uh, like, I find <laughs> to be like deeply problematic. Like, I mean, I, you know, for me, like, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine how uh, th- this this type of enterprise doesn't like doesn't end up resulting in like a form of indentured servitude for lots of people, for instance, <laughs> which is like a pretty big matzo ball. And like I, you know, I and I don't I don't uh, subscribe any bad faith intentions to to the project, but. Um, but yeah, that's that's my initial um, initial sort of gut feeling. You know, I think Keller's very Keller Easterling's very interested in sort of like hacking these systems, and I don't think that they're systems that can be hacked. Yeah, I mean, um, so I mean, it's really interesting. So in the interview, um, it's sort of you know it's just a, a lovely back and forth that has been obviously edited for word count. So sure. there's some vague uh, moments in this, um, but. Uh, when the interviewer, um, Evan, we'll just call him Evan. Thanks, Evan. Um, when Evan asks a question, he says, when, when it comes to the exchange of labor, there are other platforms that come to mind, like TaskRabbit. How do you think about the financial ecosystem they've created in a digital economy, which is increasingly precarious and which full-time work is even harder to obtain? Which, as a question that sort of makes sense, but I think it's really funny that like that's the example I would not go to. Um, so, for example, I've been a time bank user for ten yeah. years now. Um, so, for those of you who don't know what a time bank is, it's essentially like an online platform where you can go and list your capabilities and services that you could potentially offer, yeah. and it logs the amount of time that you would give to someone, and then you're sort of owed in a debt yeah. um, by a broader online community. I see. And uh, when I moved to New York, um, back when I was 23, 22, um, I essentially made my way through New York just by using this time bank, which never resulted in any money exchanges, but it did result in like the building of relationships, which is really what I was interested in. And essentially, I just said like, what I can do is I can write and edit artist statements for people (laughs) um, in exchange for um, walking across the Brooklyn Bridge with me every day. Ah. And so... 
I actually built some pretty good friendships that way, and it was sort of a consistent need as New York is a really difficult place to kind of yeah, like sure. build a community. Um, and I actually ended up kind of getting my first real writing gig that mm. way, um, or editing gig. So I think it was just sort of a, a sad example that was used. Like TaskRabbit is um, <laughs> problematic in many ways, right? Yeah. Um, and you see it kind of like popping up now in pop culture, and I'm, I was watching the Netflix series special the other day, uh-huh. and uh, this um, – disabled man was t- tells his mom he's able to make it on his own and he his mom's like I'll assemble this table for you and he's like no I'll do it and then he calls TaskRabbit and someone does it for him while he like lays on the bed and so like the exchange of money for labor is like very apparent there but right. um, the way that she sort of responds to that is that um, you know in the United States that like there's this it sort of already exists the idea of like a J1 visa right. which is usually done for teachers or researchers yeah. university professors or whatever yeah um and so she sort of situates this as like this there is like a non market right and I can't I can't fully and buy it I, yeah I, I I that's I, I I get that part gets me really worked up and I'm about to get real worked up because like, <laughs> because like up, because there's no such thing there's no such thing as a non market exchange and I mean and 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 like we all want there to be that but just because you declare something to be a non market exchange does not make it so like I I mean I think. What one of the one of the things about capitalism is that like our labor generates surplus value for other people. That's maybe like the definition. And so surplus value is literally, you know, you get paid ten dollars an hour to do some work, and someone else, uh, you know, makes ten dollars of profit off of that. But you have to go into work every day because that's the only th- you'll have to sell your labor power in order to survive. Like that is that is like the fundamental mechanism of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like uh, you know repro- reproductive labor, right? Which is the labor that other people do for usually no compensation to make sure that other people can produce surplus values for the people who ha- who just make money by owning. Mm-hmm. And so like so like the idea that these things are non-market exchanges because they're matches of, of sort of wants and needs. Like no, like they're like they end up producing surplus value for people. Like especially in the example of sort of like agriculture and like some of the other examples that she has in the kind of text uh, description of the project, and and even like the reproductive labor parts of it. Like it all ends in surplus value for something. And the idea that that's hacking the system, like it's not. It's actually it's playing by the rules of the system. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's that that's one of the things that drives me crazy. And and I think that you know like. The hacktivist approach sort of always like it always suffers from this problem of act uh, like access. Like I think that there is something to like you know if you can sort of push and pull on these levers of like these codes and standards and things like this, then like you might be able to do something. But um, people don't have access to those things. That's that's the problem. And to get access to it, you do have to revert to a normative approach to activism. Like yeah. you have to build people power. And so it to me it seems like it's trying to. Uh, 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 give us a shortcut that isn't actually there. Like the br- the brilliance of Marx is that like there's sort of there there is a fatal flaw in like capitalism has hacked itself by the fact that like you know you ha- it has to have workers <laughs> in order to work <laughs> and so like there's this fatal flaw that if you organize the workers and then like and and you get them all to go on strike then work stops like wow what a hack like that's that's how 
how I think about it. <laughs> I mean, humans themselves are hacks, so just just like by yeah. our sheer unpredictability, yeah. Maybe right? Maybe I'm a hack. Okay, so I mean, I will. So then, I guess we should just like jump right into the meat of what I know really ticked Kiefer off, which was a quote um, where um, Evan sort of like couches it in the Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses conflict, yeah. um, which I think was just sort of like an irrelevant example, but whatever. Um, so um, she she sort of says um, she's he asks her like. Are we um, – what do you mean by, by saying, like, we need to be too smart to be right? Right. Um, and she says she was referring to a kind of activism that isn't just about being right. We know how to march in the streets and should continue doing so. But there's another kind of activism that is about softening up the ground and outmaneuvering bulletproof forms of power that manage to cocoon with legal exemptions. So I know that's the phrase that, like, made you yeah. – made Kiefer angry. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about it? Okay, so I was thinking about this a lot, and um, I feel like maybe this is a gendered thing in Ah, a way. That, like, um, as a woman and as a woman of color, I'm used to operating in these bulletproof forms of power. Uh um, And the softening of the ground is the thing that, like, really got me. That it's, like, every single thing that I do that is an attempt to grab power for myself Mm. can't happen um, by telling someone who's in power that they're wrong necessarily. Sure. So here's my example. And I I do this exercise with my students every year where I have them write down like the times they feel powerful and the times they feel powerless just so they can see the list. Um, And like, what is it? What does it mean to take power away? Um, So for me, when I was a kid, I really wanted, I started noticing that boys were just listened to more and were taken seriously and their jokes were always funnier. (laughs) And so I developed a loud voice. Yeah. And I still have that loud voice now to my own doctor most of the time. <laughs> I cannot whisper very easily. Um, but I developed a, a loud voice as a way to soften the ground around me to sort of accumulate power, mm. right? Because the idea of like softening the ground when you stand on softer ground and things sort of like pour yeah. toward you, that's kind of the idea behind it. And I feel like women especially are really used to this kind of like – we may call it hacktivism, but um, it's, it's a type of um, ways – of maneuvering around power structures where you immediately well, you don't immediately see the results of but you can kind of subvert yeah. those existing like bulletproof forms. Yeah. And that's why I feel like this is almost like a gendered argument something that mm. I can personally empathize with. Yeah. Um and that yeah, we can kind of like easily sort of say like like well marching in the streets like of course that's important and she's not necessarily like ne- you know negating the power of organizing. Them, yeah. yeah. But she is definitely saying that there are like other ways of doing activism and I feel you know again I feel like time bank was very much that that you are just sort of like listing time Mm. and um yeah yeah. that makes sense to me and I I mean I think that I think that in that regard because it makes a lot of sense I I I was thinking about it in a kind of different in a different context probably because (laughs) because of who I am but I you know I think that 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 work of softening the ground yeah like uh in in that sense works I mean I think for me I, I, I just I tend to think about activism as something that is like by definition collective. Mm-hmm. And so the idea the idea that it's sort of, you know, like uh, these sort of sly interactions that a very clever individual is sort of carrying out, I think like uh, is is not like how you create the kind of system change that I think ultimately will like, that is required to like end the patriarchy mm-hmm. and like end capitalism. And so, you know, I, and, and, and like you need both things, like obviously it, it takes all kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I so but I, <laughs> I, I, I really I really find that um, that um, 
I guess I don't think that that's the kind of slyness that is being suggested here. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, the, my, my only real problem with the idea of this project is that it does rely so heavily on technology. And, you know, yeah. like, as the world burns, our phones won't save us. But, yeah. you know, there are ways to kind of uh, – use our assets right now to mm. make maybe things easier. I do want to kind of go into we so Kiefer and I had a long conversation about not wanting to talk about the vessel in New oh, York. Sure. Um but I do appreciate that um Evan brought up Hudson Yards. Yeah. Um because uh you know he sort of um goes into the idea of like what is a special economic zone um mm. which are you know zones you know mostly in China and India I think that like um pretty much like have special tax exemptions and you can kind of use yeah. labor very um, what is illegally right. <laughs> um, in these special economic zones. Um, in the United States, we have like certain trade zones where things sort of like pass and pass through these zones with mm-hmm. like, you know, um, fewer taxes or whatever. Uh, you see those in the airports and the luxury section. Sure. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, um, you know, he's sort of like, what about Hudson Yards? Like, what about that whole project as being sort of like its own kind of special economic zone? Mm. Um, and what are the implications on that, on, on like building cities? Um, which, you know, I guess I appreciate the idea that she brings up, which is like, we like corporations because they see cities as being inherently valuable, right? Because of diversity and public mm. transit and all these other things. Yeah. They see as valuable, but they're not paying for that infrastructure. Yeah, she says, I think at the end, cities need to drive a harder bargain. Yeah, which and, I totally get behind. And me too. And I really agreed with that. And this is where I was like tearing my hair out because I'm like, how do you think cities drive a harder bargain? Mm-hmm. They do it by activism. Yeah. And like, like it was it was like the act of, it was like on the ground activism, like of a, of a very traditional sort that she's sort of poo-pooing that like was, was, was the one that forced the New York City, like New York City to like drive a harder bargain with Amazon, like mm-hmm. draw a lot of attention to that, right? Which I think was like, the right the right thing to do um and i so i i I mean i think but i don't think amazon was the big problem no it wasn't the idea right like so like we you can get rid of as many corporations as you want but at the end of the day if your cities are still vying for their you know for that attraction i mean but i also want to bring up that um in reference to other writing that's happened since then um that this the hudson yards and in this context is even further complicated by the fact that um kristen caps and the team at city lab put out a piece last week um a that sort of exposes the idea that um, New York gerrymandered itself in order to yeah, receive oh, funds from e- EB-5 visas, yeah. um, which are the visas that you can kind of – you just get if you are – if you can invest enough money in real estate. Yeah. And it funnels money into, quote, unquote, blighted areas. Sure. And so the, the city of New York gerrymandered this area to receive EB-5 funding by so including a lot of like Upper <laughs> yeah. West Side neighborhoods and Harlem. So blighted mon- money for blighted communities was going to communities that weren't blighted exactly, at all. Exactly, yeah. but just by including certain pockets of communities where like um, un- uh, yeah. unemployment was below or above fifty percent, yeah. which is but really tragic. Yeah. So really, like that's those are like the core mm-hmm. issues, and mm-hmm. that's where we need to be. Like um, that's where small moments of um, resistance, I think, can kind of chip away at that. But, you know, like you said, at the end of the day, it would be really lovely if everyone just decided to lie down. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's hard work. Right. And I think that there's no shortcuts to it. Um, you know, and I, and I also think that there's lots of like 
uh, I always take sort of umbrage with the idea that like, oh, like marching on the streets so old fashioned, right? It's like there's mm-hmm. lots of uh, like very rich and alive sort of like theorizing and discussion and doing um, ar- around like sort of like what does activism mean right now? Like I think about Jane McAlevey. Uh, her book is called No Shortcuts. <laughs> That's what brought it to mind. I mean, I think that, you know, so I, I have a um, friend of the show, Manuel Schwartzberg Cario, wrote a fantastic review of um, – uh, uh, extra statecraft for Avery Review um, that I think everyone should read. And and one of the things that he talks about in it is how there's this idea of a kind of like immaculate conception of power, <laughs> right? Yeah. That is like, that is at the kind of core of, of this idea. Like the idea that like, no, like you need the corporations because you need the money. Mm-hmm. And you, and, 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 and like, I think that that is a fundamentally like liberal view of the world as distinct from a socialist view, which says like all wealth is created by workers. And so like, and, and, and that that's that's it, and it and it's stolen from them, <laughs> right? And and uh, they and they also have the power to shut it down. And so like and 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 that's the part that that always kind of leaves me, like that I that I think can explain sort of like why like I still at the end of the day sort of take issue with the idea that like like Amazon is good, right? Like look looking at a city. I mean like these aren't black and white issues because like we do live under capitalism and like uh, 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 and cities are in dire need of investment. Um, but I think for me uh, it's more of a question of sort of re like like expropriating re or re-expropriating like uh, w- wealth in the form of like taxes and other things um, to sort of uh, put put it back in in you know have democratic control of the economy um, so I don't know I mean like I know that's a little bit of a theoretical argument but I think it has some like implications for like what your theory of change is right yeah yeah I mean it's funny I'm, uh, I'm reading a book right now um, uh, called uh, neighbor uh, neighborhood that never changes, uh. um, and it's a uh, by uh, Japonica Brown, I believe yeah. her name is, and and there's like this uh, four case studies of different small to mostly smaller communities within cities, yeah. um, and two of them are in Chicago, um, Argyle and Andersonville, uh-huh. and um, she interviews residents there that. Yeah. Um, essentially openly talk about how they have gentrified mm. this neighborhood, and truly hearing from these people talks about like it really like shows that tension that like in Mm. order for there to be like neighborhood change you have to have some kind of investment right Mm -hmm. and these people are not wealthy when they bought their homes they were not wealthy per per se but like they they kind of give themselves credit for like cleaning up the neighborhood (laughs) right and it made me start to like reimagine a world in which we like investment was just thought of differently yeah and so like um Instead of looking at these things in sort of a corporate lens, like do we need corporations to invest in our cities? Yes, maybe right. we do, but um, how, what are what are how does this function in microclimate, right? right? In the in terms of a neighborhood, and mm-hmm. it goes back to like things like what Eve Ewing says about how um, in order to think about how we change cities, we need to think about um, we need to imagine a world in which people of color, for example. Yeah have amazing assets right. where in, in, like the paradigm right now is that like neighborhoods that in which you know people of color live they don't they don't have great restaurants they don't have you know yeah. amazing they don't have ramen shops you know they don't all right. the things that like gentrified neighborhoods yeah. but like in reality if we shift that paradigm and rethink that we can actually re- rethink the way we develop neighborhoods right. and so on a macro level right at like the city level you know, it's why I kind of like shout at people a lot on Twitter about like, why aren't we, we're always, you know, thinking 
about developing cities um, based on what people lack, right, and not what people have, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so I don't know. I think yeah. that like thinking of of building our cities with current assets is going to be really important. And so like then you not, you even stop stop thinking about Amazon, right. <laughs> like that just like yeah. excludes them in a yeah. way. So yeah, yeah I, I recently read an article, Monthly Review, by John Smith, where he was talking about like uh, t-shirt factories in Bangladesh and sort of like how exploitative like the fashion industry is, blah, blah, blah. But he made this really interesting point about how like gross domestic product is like w- like weirdly arbitraged as, like as a measure of like the size of an economy. So like, you know, a, a t-shirt gets made and 75% in, in Bangladesh and 75% of the work of like moving the goods and like assembly and all of that manufacture gets done in Bangladesh. And then, uh, you know, 75% of the profits stay in the country where it gets sold and sort of marked down as their GDP, mm-hmm. right? Like, how does that make any sense, right? Like, the value was created somewhere somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is, <laughs> and like, this is, like, it's a it's a really amazing article, but it's, it basically makes th- that exact point where it's like, oh, when you talk about, like, global economies and like, the way global economies function, like, actually, like, all of the, all of the poor places where we've outsourced all of our things, like, that's actually, like, you know, the source of all value. And the mm-hmm. reason why it's not measured as such is because of like sort of imperialism and blah, 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 blah. Right. And like, um, um, which I think is, a, is an, is an interesting corollary, like on a macro scale to like what you're talking about on a micro scale. Mm-hmm. And I can like, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm picturing it now, <laughs> like the, the through lines. I mean, really like the purpose of reading things like this, uh, for all of our listeners who may, uh, kind of think to themselves, like, why would I ever read like interview? <laughs> why would I get in this? Yeah. Stuff? It's really like, how do we start imagining a different world? Yeah. And I think that um, in a lot of ways, like this interview, yeah. like catalyzed that in me, right? Yeah. Like um, this, I, I mean, I, I'm very much, and sometimes I read these things and I'm like, look in the mirror, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks, Keller Easterling. But, um, you know, it's it makes you start to really wonder, like, how can we not just like organize ourselves, but how can yeah. we really reimagine systems and how can we be more wild um, in what what assets we have? And in this case, it was a cell phone and yeah. app technology. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting that she calls her app design dumb. Yeah. But then earlier in the piece references the immigration system itself sure, as being as dumb. Sure, as being dumb. <laughs> yeah. And so like which, she, she's which really Which definitely mean. is. Yeah. Hot take. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like she's really like putting two red wires together to make yeah. something that's slightly new and slightly different. Um, and hopefully slightly better. Um, again, small subversions, the softening of the ground. Sure. Um, I th- yeah, I, th- I feel like those are moments if, you know, I'm not an economist yeah. and I am not a designer. And but at least I have the wild wildness of imagination to to take these little pieces and kind of help me reimagine the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Kiefer, what else are you reading these days? Uh, what else am I reading these days? Uh, I'm I'm actually I'm reading um, a, a book called A History of Capitalism by I think Mary Woods is her name. That's uh, a really big yeah, title. It, well, it's 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 a it's a it's a history of the origins of capitalism. I forget the exact title, but I'm uh, halfway through it, and it's really good. But it sort of talks. It, it's it's interesting. It has an interesting dialogue with this like set of questions. I think. Yeah. Because I you know I do think that. Like the 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 big quibble I have here is this kind of idea. It's like an immaculate conception of power, mm-hmm. and so and I and I think that that um, uh, this that book is trying to tackle that that same set of issues where it's like 
every history of capitalism that exists up to this point basically says that like capitalism was just like sort of repressed by yeah. like the Romans and the feudalism like yeah. and the feudal lords and then it's like come into full fruition when it was liberated you know yeah. uh, in the American Revolution or like French Revolution or English Civil War yeah. and so and, and, and the book is doing a kind of really amazing job of deconstructing that okay so yeah. just based on that yeah. I'm arguing for this again um the idea that like the immaculate conception of power is how people experience power, right? Yeah, and it is. And we're not going totally to get the broad public to like read this book or like we don't we don't have the ability to like make yeah. a massive PSA saying like, hey guys, power is not immaculately immaculately right. conceived. Yeah. Um, so instead of doing that, like maybe identifying the moments in which people experience power as yeah. being that immaculate thing, yeah. and blowing them up, making them much larger or broader, um, I yeah. think will be a really interesting exercise right yeah. and like communicating to people that it is not right yeah. it's like the wizard of oz <laughs> yeah <And> totally so, <laughs> like how do we get people to experience yeah. that drawing back of the well, curtain and, moment and, and that was one of the things that i sort of scribbled in the notes section here like my notes was, i was like there is absolutely a utility for this type of project in like the ideological sphere like pro- provide like in terms of like doing propaganda right mm-hmm. to like soften the ground provided like it actually reaches the people who need it yeah. um which i like i you know, I, I understand sort of vaguely that there are efforts to do so. And so, like, um, I think that there's that. Um, you know, I also think it's like like rent lifting the ban on rent control is mm-hmm. like what what I perceive to be like softening the ground for like bigger questions about like decommodification of housing and like ultimately like a sort of ending, you know, ending capitalism, right? I, so I, I think that like, uh, you know, it's and it's which it's it's something that's like personal and is absolutely related to small moments in our lives. But um, I think that it can be a really daunting task to try to, like, be a, I don't know, like, be a, a, ro- a rogue agent. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want that for, like, the people who I, I love, right? Like, I know. To be a rogue agent, especially, when, especially like, and, and part of me thinks that this is maybe just a little bit of an outdated argument uh, from, like, the 80s, like, when everything was so powerless and grim. Like, mm-hmm. now we have, like, we I almost cussed. That, was a, that would have been a first. But uh, we, you know, we have like six alt- DSA aldermen in Chicago alone. Like the future is bright for us. So um, anyway, uh, we have to wrap up because um, the mailbag is starting. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have any, any final wrap-ups? What are you reading? Get, leave us a little uh, flavor. I have been trying for months to finish Matt, Matthew Desmond's Evicted because the exhibition that's traveling from the National Building Museum is yeah. heading to w- Milwaukee. Uh-huh. Um, and every time I pick it up and I start to read it, it makes me physically ill oh. because of the living conditions that people um, are subjected to and have been for decades and decades yeah. just in a city up the street. Uh, it's a horrific read. It's very enlightening, and the exhibition's in June. Okay. So check it out. Well, maybe we can uh, discuss that on the next iteration of The Critic's Corner. <laughs> Angelique, thank you so much. Thank you for... <laughs> <laughs>
Lumpen Radio is proudly supported by Cards Against Humanity. Cards Against Humanity helps stage and promote events across Chicago. Game nights, comedy shows, charity fundraisers, and more. More information about Cards Against Humanity's outreach program is at chicago.cardsagainsthumanity.com. It's your mailbag, folks. That's the part of Buildings on Air where we answer your listener questions about architecture with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke. Um, usually about HVAC. Yeah, usually usually <laughs> about air conditioning systems. Um, I, I, Craig, you're in the studio with us. I understand Anne, Anne is uh, uh, fin- wrapping something up and maybe coming in hot to the studio. I think so. Okay. She maybe will be running down the street at any minute, <laughs> but this is one of the, uh, I guess, one of the things about running a small firm is sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you're just needed in multiple places at one time. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, thanks for thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, with of course, us. of course. Um, we have many questions in the mailbag. Um, I I I think um, maybe I don't know. I, I wasn't I wasn't really planning on covering like the Notre Dame fire, but it seemed like there's lots of questions that people have about that. I feel like uh, we need to talk about the crazy glass thing that <laughs> Foster proposed. Oh yeah, I I just saw that like just before the show on Twitter. I just saw it like two hours ago. He proposed a new spire. um, A new like entire glass roof. Uh, For Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah, but I guess, sorry, I'm just going to jump into this because that's the most irritating thing on my mind is he proposed this like glass spire from what I can tell and also replacing all of the roof with glass. Yeah. But he seems to have forgotten that there are stone vaults in between what was a wood roof and the the interior space. So like the, what's the point of that? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, because I think that that was maybe like a like a common misconception, like that that so like I or or something that we maybe as architects like have some insight on. I think a lot of people like saw the roof burning and they were like, oh my god, like this whole thing. And I was like, no, like it's just the roof. There's vaults there. Like it's it's not like there's no danger, but because it's just the top part, because the 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 roof can collapse onto the vaults and then the vaults can collapse and then you're really into tr- in trouble. Right. Um, Which is why you don't want to dump water from a uh, flowing tanker uh, onto it. <laughs> right. As exactly. somebody suggested, <laughs> I, I know during the yes. uh, the midst of this fire. Yeah, exactly. And so um, and 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 but but it it seems like that's maybe where the damage happened was where the tall spire, which yep. was added in the 1800s by a, a very famous architect, Viola Leduc, um, collapsed in on the vault and the vault collapsed there. But but that's one of the reasons why everything is sort of untouched. So because one, well, one of the, the one vaults of, are essentially like uh, uh, fire separation. Right. You right. know what today we would make out of two layers of type X chip. Yeah. They just made out of thick pieces of stone. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look up in the cathedral, you see the stone ceiling that's arching above you and then above that is where the the kind of roof was actually because someone asked and i think it's a very earnest question um uh, is it true that a cross was untouched in the notre dame fire if so why don't we build everything from this fireproof material (laughs) which (laughs) which is like a very earnest question but like the the reason is because the the cross was like under the vault in an area that didn't collapse right right, like uh, has nothing to do with it the the it being made i mean i can i can say from personal experience i had close to 2,000 comic books that were not burned in my attic <laughs> when the fire went through the attic. Yeah. I mean, some things yeah, just, move in mis- just move in mysterious yeah. ways. You know? yeah. I wish more of the uh, more valuable comics had not burned as opposed <laughs> to my treasured uh, Batmans and uh, what? Never mind. Batman. Yeah. The, uh, there was uh, an article I was reading this morning. I guess we shouldn't talk about Notre Dame the whole time. But sure. uh, there was an article I read this morning about 
that they named a couple of the architects that were involved in mm. the like analysis oh. that was done years ago on uh, fire suppression system yeah. and how they chose to do alarms but not sprinklers uh, and that like interesting once the alarm went off someone had to someone actually like went up to the attic looked around and saw thought they didn't see any fire and went back down and thought it was okay yeah yeah i was because i was thinking there's all this speculation and about what happened right and i was like i've been on enough construction sites to know like it was something dumb like some guy you know his circular saw was sparking and it like hit something or you know they had rigged up something some electrics for temporarily and you know because they're temporary like that like construction sites are so much more likely to just immolate for all kinds of dumb reasons than than the finished product. The, uh, I think one I'm, of the best tweets I saw about it was yeah. uh, someone that said, uh, I wonder uh, who the contractor was and what their insurance policy looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and someone responded, I'm sure both the insurance company and the contractor have left the planet by now. Yeah, right. Well, it doesn't actually necessarily appear that it was a construction thing. It could have just been an existing electrical thing. I see. Interesting. Uh, from what I saw this morning in Le Monde. Yeah. But, uh, Interesting. Do you read Lamont? I do read Lamont, yes, because it has uh, that, and you get France football with it. That's why I read it. Which is a <laughs> soccer paper. So, yeah. I like tried to read Lamont a little bit while this was happening to get like most up to date news, but you know I can identify yeah. like three words of French. So, <laughs> oh, well. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how the thing unfolds. Um, I'm I'm pretty agnostic about, you know, I, I well, I'm pretty agnostic about like, you know, how, like if something should be done like the extent to which repairs should be made whether they should like i i don't really care i, I think I, I i know some bad things when i see it and i think that you know um i don't know there's enough hot takes on twitter about this really <laughs> you know like um how about how about this well a more practical question for our everyday lives what are some good materials for a fireproof building well Unfortunately, one of the things we are stuck with most often is gypsum board, yeah. which is the kind of most common. Yeah. Um, Asbestos is the best. <laughs> 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 Truthfully, <laughs> if that's your only criteria. Yeah. Uh, I think I think concrete is probably yeah. the kind of <laughs> the most beautiful. Yeah. Uh, heavy timber, too, is um, we don't really build things out of heavy timber anymore. Yeah. But... Uh, it tends to be very fire because the outside just chars, right? Uh, yeah. And then the inside stays intact. Um, moving on from fire. Uh, Please. Wait, but speaking <laughs> about fire, it is like 100 degrees in the studio today. Oh, yeah. Yes, because it's, it's summer. Summer's coming to Chicago. <laughs> yes, yeah. Finally. You're not prepared, man. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, here's, maybe it's uh, related to this next question. Can electrical dryer vents be inside a home? I live in a home with no holes to vent the dryer air outside. I just bought a bucket type of dryer vent from Lowe's that catches the lint and dirt. Uh, am I safe with just the hot air blowing into my home? Yes, uh, our dryer is the same way because our landlord, I guess, didn't feel like uh, doing the work to get it to the outside. Yeah, I think actually the problem with venting dryers to the inside is not fire; it's uh, like mold. Because uh-huh. basically, in our laundry room, when the dryer's running, it is raining in the laundry room. <laughs> it's right. like it's not just air. it's not just heat that's coming yeah. out of the dryer; it's yeah. also all of the moisture that was in your clothes. Yeah, um, and that has to go somewhere. And if it's not going outside, it's yeah. You're probably yeah. already also inhaling microplastics and other stuff like that from uh, your clothes, which probably isn't really yeah, good for you. Because mm. uh, all those polyester suits I yeah. wear that I throw in the wash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, not, not maybe the best idea. Um, 
but yeah, you're you're definitely safe. If you have a gas dryer, certainly not. Um, yeah, it'd have some to be people still have electric those. dryers. Yeah. Yeah. I have yeah. a gas dryer. Yeah, but it's vented to the outside. Yeah. yeah, the theme. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep rolling with it. The theme of this mailbag is heat, hot, hot heat. Okay. Uh, is a hot wall a cause for concern? Depends if that building's on fire. A hot door is on the other side of the fire. Yeah, you might want to take a look at that. Uh, I think that like if it is a if it's a large brick wall that is warming up during the day because the sun is shining on it that's a great thing it yeah. uh, it keeps the no the temperature too. even uh, harder to do in Chicago where we have high yeah. humidity but yeah you might have some uninsulated hot air pipes too or, or sorry, hot hot air pipes <laughs> <laughs> ducts work or uh, really I mean uh, hot water pipes though. right I was just walking around a construction site yesterday yeah. Um, with an architect who's doing a new uh, three-flat building. Sure. And he did all high-velocity ducts that uh, are just like these little four-inch pipes that come out of the yeah, floor. Sure. So they're easy to move through the um, through the open webs of wood yeah. um, wood joists. And it seemed like a nice solution. It was the first was time it, I'd seen that. Was it loud? Uh, it was not running at I the see. moment because it, it was air conditioning only. He uh. had uh, heat was through the floor. He had geothermal pumps. Oh. And then the high velocity system was just for air conditioning. Interesting, yeah, because because usually that's the that's the reason why you don't is because uh, do high velocity because it starts to get rattly. Yeah, like <laughs> much like the catalytic converter in yeah. my 1988 Volvo station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a personal choice there, I, I, Jamie. I wish it was a personal choice, but you know you I, you, I you know. afford the car that you can afford. I so. do know the poor man pays uh, twice. Yes, I know. yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. Yes. Um, although I do love I do love our wagon. Um, yeah. Shout out Mike Pendleton in the neighborhood, <laughs> uh, his former vehicle. Uh, the, uh, let's see, moving on. Um, with as many architects as there are, how come most buildings look like nothing out of the ordinary? Uh, <laughs> that's a complicated question because architects should try harder and <laughs> convince their clients to do better buildings. Yeah, uh, I think it has to do with... Uh, uh, I think it has to do with labor systems and mm. what that doing things differently often uh, is more expensive and developers are trying to drive down costs so they build kind of cookie cutter things out of the most inexpensive materials yeah. they can find. Yeah. There's yeah. also not a lot of ornament on houses. I mean people used to have especially in this na- in this city you see it's on this neighborhood there used to be a lot more ornament, you know, mm. on the cladding. You used to have carved stone and some of those things just don't exist anymore because people have forgotten how to do them you know there's there's no yeah. uh talented sculptors that would work on building you know fish and stuff like that yeah uh, but and if they did it would cost oh it'd be astronomical yeah, yeah, it'd be astronomical. yeah a bazillion dollars but i mean even if you could find someone that would do it i mean it's it's difficult to to find yeah you know um, yeah, and, and I and I think it's I mean I think it's related to sort of what we were talking about with the housing folks, you know, the way that architecture kind of becomes a, a commodity, uh, and when it becomes commoditized like that, then then you know it, the use value of it, which I think one of the use values of a, of a dwelling is that it's beautiful and sort of like right. <laughs> like lifts up your spirits, like starts to get sacrificed for the exchange value of, you know, uh, can I get the most for the least, right? Which is kind of the developer logic. Like when we say developer logic, that's always kind of what, I, what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that the um, 
I wonder, like, I don't really get the impression when people go looking for apartments, they're looking at the exterior architecture. Mm. I think a lot of times they're looking at, like, what does the kitchen look like? Is yeah. there a lot of light on it? Mm-hmm. Like, people are approaching it from the interior, which is where you see, yeah. of, uh, I guess, developer architecture putting more, um, kind of more design right. uh, power into, like, I don't know, fancy cabinets or yeah. something. Uh, or granite countertops. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't get granite countertops. Don't do that. But I mean, like the exterior of the yeah. building, like it's, I don't know. I suppose it is true that you see the interior of your house more than the exterior, <laughs> sort of by definition. So uh, that one checks out. Uh, <laughs> checkmate developers. <laughs> um, you got about one more minute for our last question here. Okay. What you got, Keith? Um, can you use paper bricks as insulation? Sure. Yeah. They must have some R value. Yeah, they do. I'm, uh, I'm sure you could, but I mean... I, I, what are paper bricks, though? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess you, you probably want to use I played like, with shredded. when I was a kid? Yeah, yeah. May, you probably want to use shredded paper. I mean, insulation, blowing insulation is made out of shredded newspaper and it's treated yeah. to be fire resistant, so yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Problem solved. Throw that paper in your wall <laughs> after your you wall. fire treat it. Yeah. Buildings on air, we don't offer. This is not actual architectural advice. Disclaimer. This, Disclaimer. It's, an, it's important to have an air barrier in addition to insulation. Oh, if yeah. you have insulation but air is moving through the wall, the insulation doesn't do you a lot of good. Yeah. So air barrier and insulation. The more you know, folks. Well, that concludes our mailbag. It's a short one. And, yeah. um, uh, uh, sorry, Anne. that was probably Future Firm's yeah, fault. No, it's okay. No, no, no. Uh, we had a jam-packed show. And uh, so we'll, we'll catch up with Anne uh, on, the, on the next episode yeah. in March. Yeah. Um, we should play a little theme there. Yeah. Sorry, there we go. Wait a minute, Mr. Postman. Right. There we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> well, that uh, concludes Buildings on Air, folks. We'll see you the third week of May. Yep. We'll be back then. Probably with Ann and Craig, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. And uh, thanks, producer Jamie. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see you guys later. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay. And Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at bldgsonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes. Radio. <laughs>